Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Mark Hemingway, who is a well-known writer and journalist in Washington, D.C., though his articles often cover cultural and social issues, not just political affairs. He was a longtime editor at the Weekly Standard, and he's now with Real Clear Politics, specifically Real Clear Politics. Investigations. And our topic today is investigative journalism in America, past and present. Mark, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Tell us, what is Real Clear Investigations? Well, um, Real Clear Investigations, it's, it's affiliated with Real Clear Politics, which your listeners might be more familiar with. And it was, you know, started a couple of years ago. It's kind of a project to do more investigative journalism. Um, and there's kind of a couple things going on here, which is to say that. Uh, of all the things in journalism that are, you know, the most time-consuming and expensive, um, investigative journalism is right up there. And as the business models for a lot of major newspapers and things like that have collapsed, so has a lot of investigative journalism. Um, and so this is an attempt to, like, inject more of that into the discussion. Um, and further, it's also true that I think that um, um, it's fair to say that the media has a very specific slant. You know, they are very, and it's becoming more and more obvious in the past couple of weeks, sort of activist liberals as opposed to trying to play it straight down the middle. And Real Clear Investigations is is seeking to be, I, I think it's fair to say, something that is much more fair, much more down the middle, much more sort of like, you know, questioning of uh, a lot of grand assumptions that the rest of the media take for granted, which is why we've done a lot of stuff. And, and, and I'm proud to say that my colleagues have broken a lot of stories on, say, the Trump-Russia uh, um, collusion narrative that turned out to be, you know, largely smoke and mirrors. And, and Real Clear Investigations has done a lot to expose how, how bad the rest of the media is in cover, covering that story. And and again, you know, we're doing this from all kinds of different angles. Like, you know, we're re- we have regular contributors that are, you know, very far to the left. And we have, you know, contributors such as myself that have, you know, come from center-right publications like the Weekly Standard. So it, it's not like, you know, a specific ideological slant so much as it is, you know, questioning the dominant narratives, and, and I think that's a very good thing to be doing. No, I, I would say to our listeners that you find on Real Clear Investigations, yeah, things coming from the left. As long as they're doing the labor of investigation and doing it well, you're open to it. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that it's important to realize that there are people on the right and people on the left that agree about certain structural problems in this country. You know, obviously, 
Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have very different, you know, policy solutions. But if you actually listen to their rhetoric, they're identifying a lot of the same problems in terms of, you know, trade, the military industrial complex, you know, the, the length of America's wars, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, there's sort of a, a populist, you know, meeting of the minds on a lot of these issues. Um, and real clear investigations, I think, um, reflects uh, a desire to find agreement between the right and left where we can. Like, for instance, there's a guy named Aaron Mate who regularly writes for The Nation that's done very good investigative journalism on the Trump-Russia um, collusion stuff for us. And it's simply because, you know, Aaron Mate normally writes for The Nation, and I, he's, he's doing this because, you know, he recognizes that there's a problem, I think, when you have the national security state interfering in sort of, you know, democratic elections and things like that. And and where we can foment um, agreement on the right and left, I, th I think it's important for journalistic institutions to do that. I, I can't imagine a more traditional target of sort of more left-wing investigative journalism than the intelligence community, right? <laughs> you would think so. And, and there have been a handful of prominent left-wing voices. Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone has been a good one who have said this, you know, repeatedly, like streaming from the rooftops, you know, when did the left all of a sudden start unquestioningly taking the word of the FBI and the CIA as has happened during the Trump presidency? Um, and I think, you know, good journalism here should should be questioning power, you know. And the fact of the matter is that we're seeing a situation here where the administrative state and the national security state, you know, to the extent that those two things come together, are wielding tremendous amount of influence that is, you know, unchecked by you know, democratic uh, elections at this point in time. And I think it's important that investigative journalism, you know, focus in on those things. But, you know, at the same time, uh, I worry, and this is true both of right and the left, I think increasingly government is a tool to wield power, not necessarily to serve the people. And, and again, good journalism is supposed to be on the people's side. And if you look at what's happening with how partisan the media has become in the Trump era, um, that is that is worrying. And, and one way of, you know, fighting back on that would be good, unbiased investigative journalism that delves into these issues. And there isn't a lot of that to be found. You, you had a recent piece uh, that, that actually came out of Real Clear Politics entitled New York Times reporters turn censors pick a perilous path. What was the argument there? Well, I'm, um, you know, I don't know if, uh, you know, your readers, you know, it's been in the news a lot. Um, the listeners here probably are somewhat familiar with it. In the last week, there was a big kerfuffle at the New York Times where the editors at the New York Times asked Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton to write an op-ed on the Insurrection Act. Now, the Insurrection Act is the law that allows the federal government to go in and restore order in the event of, you know, rioting or a national emergency. And, you know, there were riots in 700 plus cities. Um, a week or so ago. And, uh, you know, polling showed that a majority of Americans, you know, favored using military force to restore order on the streets if necessary. Four in 10 African Americans were supportive of the idea. And so you know, it was a newsworthy thing to, you know, have someone weigh in on this issue. And the moment that Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed and the New York Times published it, there was a revolt on staff. A thousand reporters at the New York Times signed a letter opposing uh, Cotton's op-ed and saying it never should have been published. And on top of that, a lot of them took to social media to the specific message they chose was this op-ed puts New York, black New York Times staffers in danger. I mean, their argument explicitly was words are violence, which is an incredibly 
dubious and I think ironically enough, even dangerous argument to make. Um, and, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we've now seen the editor of the, of the Philadelphia Inquirer forced out over the weekend because of uh, a mild racial controversy. Um, there's been, you know, magazine editors at Bon Appetit and other things. I mean, there's people are really just banged for blood. And it looks like basically the cultural revolution in America's newsrooms. Is there a generational factor here? I mean, were most of the reporters who called for the Times uh, to, to change its policy, to, to decry the op-ed, were they younger figures? You know, it's really hard to say about specific things because the New York Times has been very tight-lipped about who's been organizing internally at the paper and things like that. And I have no doubt, you know, a lot of older journalists probably signed the petition against the Tom Cotton op-ed. But having said that, I, I do think it's entirely fair that the the general perception is that older journalists, you know, they may be liberal, but they're very much sort of civil libertarian types. And younger journalists um, have been had their heads full of, you know, critical theory, you know, and critical race theory, which has been very dominant at colleges um, in, in the last 30 years. And they have an, an entirely different and I think, frankly, anti-American attitude about things like freedom of speech, such they're able to, you know, without even, you know, questioning whether it's damaging to their industry or the country at large, make arguments like words or violence. I mean, this is just now widespread in media. And it's 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 frankly kind of you know terrifying. And then, and then on top of that, you have this other issue, which is that, you know, what really caused the whole critical theory, critical race theory thing to like, you know, break free and, and start running wild like we're seeing now is social media. The New York Times can't really control its reporters because when you've got a whole bunch of reporters that have half a million Twitter followers, they have a very large platform on their own to criticize their employer in ways that their employer can't fight back against, um, or else, you know, they're going to get like an angry mob of, of subscribers, however represent, unrepresentative it is, to go after them and their advertisers. So they're, they're basically being held hostage by their employees. And, uh, you know, that's one thing in the moment that we're going to see this revolution, but I'm not sure in the long term. An institution as large as the New York Times, it's got to support things like foreign news bureaus and it's got to you know, have a net cater to a national audience can um, survive by, you know, narrowly focusing in on such a radical, you know, extremist, you know, progressive sort of editorial um, line. You call the angry ones at the New York Times, quote, activist journalists. Can can you really be both? Well, I think you can be both, but the thing is, is you have to be very upfront about um, who you are and where you're coming from. You know, it, it's fine to be activist to a certain extent if you're an opinion columnist. It's not so fine to be an activist if you're a business reporter, right? And, you know, and, and at the very least, you should be open and honest about your biases. Further, I think there are certain things that are, you know, that need to be generally acceptable things in civil society that you lines where lines you don't cross because you're respectful of other people's rights and and a lot of what's going on here in terms of this activism that we're seeing uh, i think is crossing a lot of lines um two days after the new york times declared that the that the tom cotton op-ed which you know, was reflecting an argument that polling shows that a majority of americans agreed with was unacceptable they published an op-ed that encouraged people to text all of their family members and tell them that unless they donated money to their preferred political organizations and, you know, started, you know, marching in the streets, um, protesting in the middle of a pandemic, that you were not going to 
call them or have any contact with them until you signed on to their, you know, your political line, um, which I think is just an abhorrent argument that no major newspaper should be should be made. I mean, cutting off all contact with your family unless you subscribe to um, unless they subscribe to your beliefs is what you do when you join a cult. That's not what you do when you're trying to persuade people, you know, of the merits of your particular political position. And yet the New York Times has no problem signing on to those kinds of crazy, crazy tactics. It's only when you express a you know, majority position that maybe leans a little right that causes consternation at the Times. It sound, yeah, it sounds like a, the, the old cultural revolution of, of children denouncing their parents uh, and, and the like. Um, let me get to a, a, a sort of a technical or procedural aspect of investigation. Uh, how does a good investigative journalist handle leaks? You know, that is a really good question. I mean, so from a vocational perspective as a journalist, I mean, I think you don't look at gift horse in the mouth. So, you know, leaks can be good. Leaks can be very useful. I think the problem, though, is and what journalists aren't very wary of and what we've seen in the Trump era is that this like culture of leaking has emerged where um, journalists are granting widespread anonymity um, to almost anyone that will tell them anything about what's going on behind closed doors in government. And they're being taken advantage of, you know, time and time again, we've seen big exposés in the Trump era just completely fall apart precisely because the anonymous leaks that undergirded the reporting turned out to be you know, completely countermanded by the facts. And what's happening is, is that journalists have become so willing to grant anonymity to sources um, they're taking advantage of the journalists, you know, goodwill in that regard. I, would, I don't know if goodwill is the right word, but they're taking advantage of the journalists knowing that, you know, they can, you know, burn these journalists and, and they're not going to, you know, it's not going to blow back on them as sources. Um, when I went to journalism school in the, you know, mid late nineties, you know, <laughs> 20 years ago, the thinking back then was anonymous sources should only be used in extremely rare cases because of the dangers that they posed in that regard. And two, there was a, you were supposed to have some sort of self-evident pride as a journalist. If someone abused your, you know, your good faith attempt to grant them anonymity or something like that, you outed them or you, you know, made it sure that people knew that that person wasn't trustworthy so that they weren't allowed to leak again and again and again. And I think what's happening Trump era is you're seeing the same sources lie over and over and over again. And why wouldn't they? Because they keep being granted anonymity. How does a journalist know that he's being manipulated? Well, you don't. But the surest way to you know, make sure you're not being manipulated is to do real journalism. So you actually, you know, go and try. And when someone tells you something, you go and check it against other sources. So there was a there was a big story um, in CNN a couple of years ago where CNN reported that Donald Trump Jr. was given a copy of the hacked Democratic National Committee emails in 2016, that was a big part of the campaign, if you recall, in advance of them being public. And the, the big takeaway from the article was that somehow the Trump campaign must have been on the collusion because they knew the Russian hackers well enough to get an advanced copy of these emails. Well, it turned out that the, the date on those emails was wrong and that Donald, the, the supposedly incriminating emails by Donald Trump um, Jr. were the date was was after they'd been released publicly. So there was no basis for the entire story. 
And yet two other sources confirmed what CNN had reported. And not one of the three sources that reported this story had actually seen the original emails to verify whether they were true. I mean, that's just abhorrent, abhorrent journalistic behavior. Um, and yet that kind of thing has become a common you know, facet of, the, of reporting in the Trump era. Um, you know, can anyone remember a major, you know, journalistic correction in the last, you know, four, four years or so where the correction actually showed that they were being too favorable to Trump? I mean, nobody can. Right. How, did, did, did journalists, were journalists, as they were pursuing the Russia collusion story, Mark, did they conceive of themselves as investigative journalists? Or were they just relying – were they aware, I'm just relying on what I'm being spoon-fed by some anonymous sources or other journalists? Did they think that they were doing investigation? I'm sure that they did. Journalism has been largely defined by Watergate, for better and for worse. I mean, so journalism as an academic discipline, for instance, didn't really exist in a lot of ways until about the mid-'70s. I mean, there were probably only a handful of academic programs in the country where you can get a journalism degree – until Watergate happened and all of a sudden, you know, became this glamorous profession. So everybody that goes into journalism these days has this, you know, romantic notion of, you know, holding the most powerful people accountable and taking down the president and all of these things, um, you know, meeting shadowy sources in a, in a parking garage in a trench coat and, you know, learning, you know, about high level corruption. And the reality is, is that good journalism is often more of a grind. You know, it's working the phone. It's it's talking to a lot of people. It's making incremental gains. It's not, you know, dramatic scoops that, you know, take down the White House. And I think that they've, they've the combination of a lack of fundamental resources applied to the kind of, you know, grinded out incremental journalism that actually breaks big stories um, combined with this buying whole hog into this romantic notion of, of uh, taking on the president has made journalists really lazy. So they're incredibly dependent on sources and what they tell them. Um, and it's just really, really, really unhealthy. They're, they're not doing the work themselves. They're, they're just being spoon fed. They're not, you know, out there pounding the pavement, talking to people. They're waiting for the phone to ring so someone can leak something. Yeah, but Mark, they may get a movie made out of their, out of their work. <laughs> right. They also made a movie out of Stephen Glass, too. That's right. That's right. Just tell our listeners very quickly who that was. Oh, sorry. Stephen Glass was a reporter at the New Republic about 20 years ago that was infamous for completely making things up. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of cautionary tales in journalism, even in the last few years. And it just doesn't seem to be any caution as a result. Are there instances of a journalist who, for a couple of years, really pushed the Trump-Russia collusion story who, after the whole Mueller thing fell apart, turned around and said, doggone it, they, they, they toyed with me, they used me, I am now going to be investigating them. Are there any cases of, of, of those people? I cannot think of a single example. Um, and, and this is another big part about why journalism being so activist and, and liberal um, predominantly is a huge problem. And that's because there's, you know, sort of safety and group thing. You know, if everybody is wrong, then nobody is wrong, sort of the dominant thinking in journalism. But the problem is, is it doesn't quite work that way. You know, for, for decades now, we've routinely seen, you know, public opinion polling that shows that, 
you know, Americans trust in, in, in journalists is, you know, somewhere below used car salesmen. And I can't say that journalists haven't earned that distrust. Um, and yet they just seem to keep doubling down on it, um, even as their business models collapsing, even as the, the trust is, is, is diminishing. So you would, you know, you would think that they would do something about this. My, my colleague at Real Fair Investigations has written, um, Lee Smith has called, um, the Trump Russia collusion narrative, uh, an extinction level event for media credibility. And I think in some ways he's not wrong. I mean, it's going to be a generation or more, I would imagine, before you see widespread media trust and you may never see it again. Has the internet helped or hurt investigative journalism? Well, obviously it's helped. I mean, a lot more resources are available at your disposal as an investigative journalist in terms of, you know, finding basic information and things like that. So in some ways you'd think there'd be more of it. On the other hand, because everything is so readily available, I think it makes people lazy. And, and again, I don't want to make generalizations as there are a lot of fine younger reporters, but I think the people that were raised in, a, in an internet culture that don't remember the time before the internet uh, have a very sort of, you know, cosseted idea of what actual research is. You know, not everything can be found just by, you know, Googling it. Lived experience is a very, very important thing. And it's very important to go out and talk to people that know more than you do and, you know, get different different perspectives on things as opposed to just regurgitating what, you know, the first few links on Google are telling you. What are three areas where we need a regiment of investigative journalists to direct their energies, apart from the, you know, excluding the, the, the Russia the intelligence community. Are there, are there three other areas you can think of that are really prime for investigation right now? Well, let's see if I can get the three. Um, the first is it's sort of tangentially related, but in general, we have this very large, unaccountable administrative state in this country. You've got something like two million unelected federal employees that are impossible to fire and have sort of de facto legislative authority in terms of the regulations that they're pushing on us. There's no real sunlight on their decision-making process. There's no accountability for what they're doing. Like, for instance, in the Obama administration, we saw that the VA scandal, um, you know, what really became of that? I mean, nothing, really. I mean, I think a handful of people have been fired at the VA, even though there were, you know, widespread deaths being caused by bureaucratic incompetence. Uh, similar, similar thing with the IRS scandal, where there was almost no accountability for, you know, massive abuses. Um, so, Definitely looking more into what specific, you know, federal and government agencies are doing um, is is something that needs to be, you know, really done. I would also say that academia is another story there where, you know, yeah, it, it's one thing to talk about you roll your eyes and say, oh, well, you know, those crazy kids on college campuses are protesting. But the reality is, is that um, our America's future is in, in jeopardy because, you know, our citizens have been saddled with billions and billions of dollars of debt based on, you know, what's happened in higher education in terms of their mismanagement. Um, obviously, I think the rioting in the streets and things like that that we're seeing is the result of questionable ideas being promulgated among young people um, and ideas that I think are frankly anti-American. Um, and, and there needs to be, you know, more reporting on, on what's going on in your, your college your local college campuses. And then I guess for a third thing, I would think in general, there needs to be a lot more, if I can say this broadly, investigation into what's going on with 
um, sort of the wealthy elite in this country. I mean, I realize it's kind of a broad category, but we've seen so many scandals in recent years, whether it's um, Harvey Weinstein's sexual uh, abuse or um, oh, why am I blanking? Who was the guy that ran the Ponzi scheme uh, in New York? Bernie Madoff. These were scandals that were largely hiding in plain sight. You know, Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I mean, these are things that went on for decades and people kind of knew about them. You know, things bubbled up and they weren't really followed up on. You know, there was reporting on Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein's, you know, misbehavior that had been going on for the better part of 20 years. And yet there wasn't ever the resources that was directed at that. Partly that's because, you know, we see that certain influential people in journalism, you know, Graydon Carter, for instance, who was editor chief in Vanity Fair, has taken a lot of heat, you know, for allegedly having killed a major Jeffrey Epstein report, you know, years ago. There needs to be a lot more courage in America's newsrooms, you know, going after wealthy people um, and powerful people and individuals. You know, know, I remember a story. This was, I think, about 10 years ago, a small city just outside Los Angeles called Bell. It was Bell, California. And it turned out that the city council and, and the mayor, about eight of them, with one exception, they were paying themselves six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year. And and then this other council member was getting about seventy thousand. He he was he was clueless. But this was a story that broke. I think some of these people might have gone to jail, but that story was not broken by the LA Times. I think it was a small, unknown journalist working at some small local paper. But as you said, all of this was in plain sight. If someone would bother to dig into Bell City Finances, it would be there. Now, uh, what, what you said about the, uh, about the Internet, I mean, this, this is one where that doesn't require a lot of resources, right? That, that's not an expensive investigative process, I, I would think. I mean, I mean the, the evidence was all there. And then once it got reported, then the, then the L.A. Times and others uh, picked up on it. And it was even worse than than it, than it first appeared. So I would think that there there is a lot of low hanging fruit ready to to be found uh, among, you know, uh, among government agencies. And that this would be a place where young reporters could could really make a mark on things. No. No, you're absolutely right. There's a couple of issues there to unpack. One is that, obviously, you know, for a long time, journalism in this country and the objective journalism model was sustained by having lots of, you know, local papers that were essentially regional monopolies. And ironically enough, the Internet sort of, you know, killed that all off. Um, So there's less focus on regional reporting, even though the information there is probably more widely available. There just isn't the economics there to sustain it. And I don't know what the solution is, but, you know, we definitely need to fix it. The other part of that story, though, is I believe there's actually another town in California that still exists to this day that, you know, it's like population 87 people or something like that, where they incorporated, you know, like Bell, California, to do a very sort of similar scam. And I think it's still operating where they're abusing the, the state's public pension system to you know, pay themselves um, the, the amounts of money. And part of the situation there with Bell and this other town that I'm talking about and part of the reason why people didn't look into it is because what they were doing was, as I recall, in a lot of ways, it was technically legal. I mean, they were abusing the rules that were set forth in the state's pension system and other, and other things like that. And part of the, the other problem there is I just don't think people are bringing enough skepticism to bear 
on government in general. I mean, I think there was among, you know, even liberals not that long ago, a much more sort of skeptical attitude about the abuse of power of government. Now, I think that, you know, as liberalism has become increasingly, you know, left, um, there's less of that civil libertarian attitude and, and skepticism of power and more, you know, um, uh, unquestioning obedience to the state. As a right. Uh, l last question, Mark. In, in the next 10 years, if real and clear investigation seems like a success, does this mean that there is a public hunger for genuine investigation and that it's going to get better in the next 10 years? Look, the bottom line is if you break news, there's going to be a market for that. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Now, having said that, Real Clear Investigations is, is kind of a nonprofit entity. And one of the very cool things about what we do is we allow anyone else to republish our work as long as there's just, you know, they give you some sort of attribution. Um, that's how desperate I, I, I think, you know, desperately I think this sort of thing is, is needed is that, you know, people are willing to do that sort of thing and more power to them. But yeah, I do think that if you were breaking stories, absolutely, you're going to make money doing that in journalism. But the problem is, is it's, it's actually hard to break stories if you don't question the government and you are part of the journalistic um, ideological monolith where everybody's competing to spout the same ideas and to leave the same stones unturned. Um, and, and, and that's the real problem. In order to succeed at this, you need to go against the center left consensus of journalism in this country. And uh, as we've seen, you know, it seems like journalists would rather throw themselves off of buildings than do anything that would be damaging to Joe Biden's campaign or, you know, otherwise harm the cause of you know, social justice. Uh, Mark Hemingway, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.